Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. I invite you to scroll through my catalog of more than 130 awesome interviews and listen on any podcast app or at the website aarecoveryinterviews.com. Each story is a powerful testimonial of the recovery available to all in AA. Today's show is an encore episode of my interview with Chris G. from January 2021. Chris has been a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous since May 2016. My guest on today's show, Chris G., offers the perspective of one who found AA over 15 years ago, but after the first year and a half, decided to go back out. Relapse for some is a sad and tragic story. Many alcoholics are claimed by incarceration, institutionalization, or death before they have the chance to make it back. In Chris's case, by the grace of God, he survived to finally return to AA and today has four and a half years of continuous sobriety. I met Chris 15 years ago when he first came to AA, welcomed him into the fold, and was glad to see him every week. Despite the many times he slipped and came back, we were all glad to see him and all of us encouraged him to do the work and reap the gifts of sobriety. Now, with nearly five continuous years in the program, many of those gifts have shown up in Chris's life and are his to keep as long as he stays actively in the middle of the AA program. Chris's story may be of particular interest to listeners in early sobriety, as well as newcomers and those back from relapse. It's also essential listening for those who've been around a while who appreciate the heartfelt gratitude for AA present in the experience strength, and hope offered by my very special guest, Chris G. I'm Chris, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Chris. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks, Howard. I like people to feel as comfortable as possible, so by introducing themselves as they do in a meeting, if you've been to enough meetings, then that'll feel pretty comfortable after a it while, won't it? definitely does. I want to thank you for, for being here today, too, because as you've listened to, I think, the first six episodes, you've noticed that a number of the people who I've interviewed have significantly long periods of sobriety. For variety and to be able to provide a balanced picture of people in AA and their stories, I was very interested in having you on the show because you and I have gotten to know each other over the last several years, but I've really come to admire the work that you've done in AA. So let me see. Let me guess. You've been sober six years? Uh, no, four, just over four and a half years. My sobriety date is May 13th of 2016. Now, is that the first of sobriety dates that you've had, or have you had other sobriety dates in the past? No, I've, uh, I've had uh, many desire trips, uh, but uh, I have. Um, but my very first sobriety date, I remember, it was December 1st of 2006. So that was uh, 14... 14, almost 15 years ago. That's correct. I was 26 at the time. And to be uh -huh. honest, you know, that was probably uh -huh. one of the most, that was probably the perfect meeting for me to go to at that time in my life, because you're right. I uh -huh. walked in and, uh, I saw a lot of guys who were my age, maybe a little bit younger, mm -hmm. uh, and some older as well, you know, uh, and it's funny, I, I, mm -hmm. I'd say probably what I would consider old, but, uh, I am now that age. So, <laughs> but, but I, but I got locked in with, with a lot of guys that were right around my age and, um, 
to, yeah. to be honest, they kind of, they kind of just took me, you know, uh, they did. did they they kind of just were like, here's where we're going to be tomorrow. And here's where you're going to be tomorrow. So if this was a motion picture right now, it would be this flashback to your younger life. And maybe we can do that and take a look at where, where did you grow up and what was home life like for you uh, when you were a kid? Yeah, as a kid, I'm born and raised in Houston, here in Houston. And uh, uh-huh. as a kid, I can re- vividly remember that I was always a anxious, nervous, uncomfortable person a kid yeah. that really wasn't comfortable with himself mm-hmm. and uh, have a, a mom who's very hardworking mother. I uh, was raised by a very strong woman. I have an older sister who uh, really is a big part of my life and is, is uh, she's 10 years older than me. Uh, yeah. But I had a father who was uh, very uh, abusive uh, physically, mm-hmm. verbally, emotionally, yeah. And and so my household uh, from day one was very chaotic and it was very much a I didn't know what I was going to come home to when my dad was around. Mm. Um, I would either get he'd either be my best friend or I was going to get a beating that day. And uh, and what did that what determined which of those two things happened to you? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, you know, huh. there's there's. I don't know a whole lot about my father. My parents divorced when I was seven. And, uh-huh. you know, the the little that I do know about him, to my understanding, and this is only me looking back at, at the point of life mm-hmm. I, am, I am now. So it took a long time for yeah. me to even see this. But um, he was raised in an alcoholic family. And um, mm-hmm. he witnessed uh, an active alcoholic who, to my understanding... His drinking led to his death. Uh, I don't know if he drank himself to death mm-hmm. or if he, my grandfather, if he uh, either drank himself to death or if the amount of alcohol he would drink had, you know, taken a toll on his body and he died. So, so um, mm. to my understanding, very physically abusive family as well. And, uh, uh-huh. and uh-huh. so my dad didn't, uh, to my understanding as well, uh, didn't drink, didn't drink at all. So stayed mm. away from it. Maybe had a fear of it, yeah. um, and and I, I feel yeah. like kind of lived yeah. a life of being held back by fear, and and I know what that is like. Yeah, um, I know what that yeah. can do to you. And it's uncanny that almost all of my, the guests I've had on this show so far, and I'm expecting it'll be this way well into the future, that have similar stories and pieces of their stories uh, could could be taken right out of my past as well. My dad never drank. I never saw him drink. And he was a rageaholic. He had some mental health issues, uh, including clinical depression, which I inherited. But depending on what his mood was, and he had suffered PTSD during the Second World War, I never knew from day to day what to expect when he came home from work. And actually, I would have, looking back, it would have been better if he had drank, because that way I'd know if he drank, he'd be one way. If he didn't drink, he'd be another. But it was always uncertain. Sounds like that's kind of your past situation as well, huh? Very much. Yeah, that was exactly it. And and uh-huh. I think you're right. I've had that thought, you know, I'm like, man, you know what? I wonder if what would have, what we, what he would have been like if he had just drank, because um, yeah, I know what it's like to not drink and 
have that uncomfortable mm-hmm. feeling, but it never, I would never let it last for that long. Yeah. Yeah. And of course you had the experience of the parents getting divorced when you were seven. I, from the time I think I was seven until whenever it was I left home, I was always pleading with my mother to divorce my dad. And of course she never would. So I was, I was stuck with him. Now, once your parents divorced, what, what was your life like after that? Well, once they, uh, once they divorced, I, uh, there was a, a period of time where I would see my dad and I don't really remember how often, maybe it was a typical every two weeks uh, type deal. I think it mm-hmm. kind of was, if I remember correct. It was only a short period of time, yeah. though. Um, and uh, when I would come back to my mom's house, you know, mm-hmm. I would be angry at my mom and my sister and would, you know, wouldn't want to talk to them and wouldn't want to go go back. And, and so, you know, he was, and I do remember this, you know, would, would tell me things, would kind of try to manipulate me and say, this is your mom's fault and your sister's fault. That's the reason, mm. you know. Um, That's a hard thing to put on a kid, isn't it? Yeah. And so I would, I would come back and I would act out. And, and so finally my mom said, you know what, that's, that's it. You're, you are not going to see him, uh, that we're done. And, you know, honestly, he never Mm -hmm. put up a fight after that. That was it. Mm -hmm. Really? So was there a particular point at which from that point forward, you never saw your dad again or? I don't remember the last time. I actually remember the very last time I saw my father, but I don't remember it the last time from when I was a child. Uh, So I can say it was probably Uh if I had had to guess, you know, probably around eight years old, maybe nine. It was around the last time I think I saw him. I may have seen him a couple times there off and on. But like I said, I, I couldn't tell you the last time as a child, but, uh, I did go see mm-hmm. him on his deathbed. Hmm. When was that? Uh, 2011. Yeah. I was 31. Wow. Uh, my, wow. my grandmother reached out to my mom uh, his, his mother, my grandmother, his mother reached out to my mom and and said, you know, he's, he's on his deathbed. And if you or, or Chris or, or my sister, uh, wanted to, to go see him, then this would be the time. And so I, I went Mm. to see him. I knew that, uh, I knew I needed to do that Mm -hmm. at that time. And I went, Mm. I went and saw Mm. him and he was, I don't know if he, Knew I was there. He was poked up and he had Parkinson's, to my understanding. Yeah, he had Parkinson's and to my understanding, he didn't really take care of himself. Yeah. And and uh, I think mm-hmm. he was diabetic. And, and so um, he was just all hooked up with tubes and dying. But what's crazy is uh, yeah. I remember walking in the, the uh, hospital room to see him. And, you know, I had carried, I, I grew up with a lot of anger. I grew up, you know, it's funny you, sure. you talked about that rage all like, right? Like as much as I never wanted to be my dad, I turned into him, you know, and, and I remember mm-hmm. carrying so much hate and anger towards him. And I walked into that, uh, hospital room and all of the fear that I had as a kid came right back to me, you know, and here's this wow. guy who's, he's laying in a bed and I'm 31 years old and I work out and I'm, you know, I don't consider myself a tough guy, but you know. All of that fear came in right away the second I saw him. Wow. I was afraid of him again. Wow. That's amazing. Now, 
the work that you had done in the program to that point that you got to see your dad, were you able to work on any of that uh, with fourth and fifth step with S8 and 9? Or was all this just kind of new territory for you? No, I can tell you the reason, the only reason I knew I needed to go see him was from the work I had mm-hmm. done the first time in the program, for mm-hmm. sure, 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did mm-hmm. four and five. I made it through eight and I was supposed to start nine. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was where I ended the steps the first time. Um, and so I think you're right. Four and five was, I was just the reason I knew I needed to go to him. Uh, mm-hmm. and I needed to tell him that I forgave him. Yeah. Were you able to do that? I did. I got an opportunity. My, my you know, I hadn't seen my grandmother, I think since I was a kid and I saw her for the first time and, they gave me some time in there mm. alone with him. And, uh, you know, it was, it was mm. as crazy as it sounds. It was, it was scary and it was hard, but, but I knew I needed to tell him that I told him I forgave him and that mm. it was okay. And he passed mm. away the next That's, day. Yeah. Hmm. So was it a, a release for you of whatever hold he still had over you emotionally or was it not that heavy? It was better. It was, it was better. Yeah. Uh, I felt good doing that, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but I still had a lot of, uh, and I think I still do, <laughs> have a lot to learn from it and yeah. have a lot to understand, and you know. But but I know that 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 was a good thing I did. I know for for me, mm. hopefully for him. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I actually, mm-hmm. it was the beginning of my anger going away for him and having compassion mm-hmm. for him. Yeah. That's what started it. What a valuable experience. Very much. Um, yeah, it was, uh, especially, um, I'm a father, as you know, I'm a father now and, uh, and, and so yeah. I, I just, I'm so grateful that I even had the opportunity to do that. Uh, and I attended his funeral yeah. and then uh-huh. I'll tell you even since this last time, this I've worked the steps multiple times, but, uh, the, the, the first yeah. time I did it in 2016, um, I wrote him a letter and I went to his graveside and I, I read it to him and, and that, that was the, I don't want to say the end, but that was the kind of the big, like, that's when it really changed. That's when I really started to like have sympathy and, really kind of start to say, Hey, you know what, what, what was his life like? You know, really start to try to see it through his perspective and, and really then start to heal. I've done a lot of healing over that from just having that experience. Yeah. That's a, it's an important healing to have too. And with my father, one of the difficulties was by the time I got around to being able to do a eighth and ninth step, he was already suffering with dementia. And it was weird because when you're doing a a ninth step with somebody who has no recollection of whatever it is that you're there making amends for, it's it's a kind of a weird experience. But it sounds like you got a good deal of emotional growth out of the the entire experience itself. Let me ask you something, uh, Chris, and I, I know you just mentioned that you're, you're a parent. How many, how many kids do you have? Oh, uh, one child, a boy, eight. So in my life, after I got sober, I was sober for about a year and a half before my wife got pregnant with the first of three children we had within five years. 
And having the kind of upbringing I had with an extraordinarily abusive father and an emotionally unavailable mother, I was terrified at the thought of how I might be as a father. Did, did you experience that? <laughs> Love that you said that. Yeah, I did. I was scared to death of it. In a lot of ways, I didn't want to be a father, you know, because of mm. my experience. And it's, in my my mind, it was, I, I have no clue what it takes to be a father. So there's no way mm-hmm. that I, yeah. I am qualified. And so I was deathly afraid of being a father. I was. Yeah. And, and, and what I ended up doing was, and it wasn't necessarily innate, but I remember talking to my sponsor about it and I hadn't had him for very long because I didn't get a sponsor till I was sober almost a year. So this is a man I only really knew for about six months before my wife uh, uh, had our first child, who's now 31 years old. But um, he said to me, you need to take this into a meeting. You need to get support of other men, get that experience, strength, and hope so you know it can be different. You don't have to be the same man that your father was. And that was absolutely sage advice that made the, the largest difference in the world. I don't know that I was a perfect father, but I wasn't the father that my dad was to me. And I know I wasn't, I wasn't the father that my dad's dad was to him because my, I know those stories now. And, you know, maybe, maybe the abuse and all that ended with my generation, maybe not, but, uh, at least it was clarity. At least it was clarity. So, when you were feeling all that, that fear and trepidation about becoming a father, how did you process that at the time? I drank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that was a, uh, that, that was a time in my life when I, I definitely, things were starting to, to happen for me in life that, that were great. Um, but then, mm-hmm. uh, this was a, was a huge one. I had a, uh, I was, was married had a wife who, who very much mm-hmm. wanted to have a family, start a family. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and so, you know, I'll say this, I, I guess be an adult. She wanted to be an adult and have a life. And like I said, start a family. Right. Yeah. And those were things that all terrified mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. really. I didn't know that then, but they terrified me. So, uh, I, I drank and I, I hit it as much as I could. And, and, uh, and I was gone mm-hmm. as much as I could. And, um, uh, I wish I had the the program at that time, but but what's great is, you know, when I look back, everything happened the way it was supposed to happen. Sure. Um, I did, even though I was drinking, like you mentioned earlier, you know, I I had come in and I had gotten just enough of the program to like mm-hmm. hear things and remember them and remember how I felt when I was really involved in in the program and it's like I had these little nuggets that would kind of stay with me and come to mind and, and, and like kind of similar to what you were saying there with things that can get better and I can be a better person. And, 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 mm-hmm. and I noticed that like once my son was here, I knew I didn't want to be my father. And so mm. I was, it was a struggle, but, um, I, I just, did everything I could. I went, went to work. It's like, I went to work almost, uh, doing everything I could to not be my father. But, but, you know, uh, I think what, what kind of left me with a little bit of hope is, is I had a, uh, 
a father figure that was kind of uh, early um, in my my childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it taught me how to do a lot of things, and he taught me how to hunt, and he taught me how to. Uh, mm. drive a car as a, as a kid. I, I drove a stick shift at like 12 years old. <laughs> That's great. Uh, taught me just, a, you know, was, was kind of a dad to me. You know, I got a very brief experience with that and uh, he, he passed away. And so, uh, you know, that was kind of, that kind of led more so into my uh, problem with with God and and higher power, but mm. but I fast. I, I'm telling you, kind of that that hope or that like good experience that I had there helped and shaped the beginning, even when it was very difficult yeah. and I was drinking with my son. It it kind of like it affected me in a positive way. Yeah. If that makes any sense, I don't I don't know. It makes makes perfect sense. How long was he in your life? About three years. Was his passing sudden? Was it uh, expected? Unexpected. Sudden. Um, Unexpected. It was a plane crash. Oh, my God. Okay. So that created problems with your spiritual beliefs, or what, what, what were you telling yourself about that situation that created a gap between you and a belief in a higher power at that point? I was around 13 years old, mm-hmm. and I just remember... There are a few things that, like, you can remember like it's yesterday. Yeah. Right? I can't remember what I did last week. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) But but there are a few things in your life that you remember like yesterday. That was one of them. I Hmm. remember when my mom told me that I made the decision then no one was going to take care of us. I had to do it. And there was Hmm. nothing that was going to take care of me or my mom or my sister mm-hmm. or, or any of us. It, I was the man of the house and I had to take care of us and I would not rely on anyone else ever again. Wow. At 13. Yep. Hmm. That's a big responsibility for a, a 13 year old, isn't it? Huge. Yeah. Yeah. What was your mother's response to the realization that that's how you felt or that's what you were planning to do i don't think she knew because i never said it to her it was something i told myself really yeah really i kept it in and so what kind of actions did you take that grew out of that that is very much the i'm gonna do what i want to do type attitude that was where it grew Uh where it developed you know um Uh it it made me take everything I felt and shove it down and do whatever I needed to do in order to not feel that uncomfortable feeling of fear because I felt it from day one. I experienced it when I lost, you know, my father and I, you know, when he Uh left and then this man who was kind of like a father to me, was taken, um, you know, that just kind of really all, uh, made me say, I'm no longer going to be me. I'm going to be whatever I need to be to get what I want, when I want it, how I want it. Yeah. That's a, that's a perfect setup for an alcoholic or someone to become an alcoholic. So you're in what seventh, eighth grade at this point. And, uh, 
how did what you were feeling and thinking at that time manifest itself in your development at that point as a as an adolescent in school and out of school well it's interesting i you know it was I'll, and i'll say that was definitely the beginning because i i can remember thinking that and saying that to myself and in 7th 8th grade Ninth grade, I, I kind of, I had just moved. We had moved across town. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we grew up in a, I would say, I, I was born and spent the first years up till about sixth grade in, in a uh, middle class, lower middle class area. Mm-hmm. Uh, around In seventh grade, uh, we moved to a new part of town uh, mm-hmm. with more upper middle class to higher, higher class uh income. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And, and so I kind of yeah. got thrown into this, uh, a, another, you know, part in my life where, where I, I was feeling, uh, uncomfortable and not as good and, and less than, uh-huh. um, yeah. and so it was a few years of, of me just really, um, floating around trying to figure out how to fit in. Uh, I was, I was very shy and I was quiet. And I didn't, I wouldn't really open mm-hmm. up to anyone. Um, mm-hmm. I knew how to avoid being picked on. I never got to go through, like, I never had to experience being picked on or having a rough time at school. So I can always get through, you know, kind of the social part of, of school there. What did you attribute that to? Were you a big kid? Did you know how to fight? What What was there that kept you from being picked on as the new kid? Being invisible. I knew how to be invisible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because I yeah, couldn't fight. I couldn't. Yeah, so that's, that's one way of doing it. Huh? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, it, but, but you know, it's strange. It's like I, I, I sat back. It's like I sat back and I watched. I watched. I, I don't want to say that. Mm. I don't say that I'm, I did that. That was my thought. That was my intention. But it's almost like I just sat back and, and, and watched because I can tell you by, by 10th grade, which is when I took my first drink, my life mm-hmm. changed. And, and I sat back and watched yeah. how things were in this whole new part of town I was living in and this whole mm-hmm. area. I watched how people socialized and what made you accepted and what what worked, what, you know, what made you accepted. Was there a particular group that you ran with or did you hang out with the other invisibles or, I mean, what was that like? I've always had an ability to create a relationship with someone. I, I didn't. I didn't really sure. have uh, a group of friends. I had like a, a handful, maybe in middle school, and it be, like I said, in ninth grade, mm-hmm. from seventh to ninth, it was probably a handful of friends uh, that I was really close with. But it was just like three to five friends, mm-hmm. and so we weren't in a group. Mm-hmm. It was like I was friends with this mm-hmm. guy here, who was friends with these people, and this guy over here, friends with these. You know, so at that time, I didn't really have a a group of friends that I was running with. It was I was pretty good at making external like friendships, right? I get it. Yeah, yeah. I I had a lot of those kind of superficial friendships too, as a result of us moving a lot, and it's it's difficult when you're the new kid in school. You get to the point at which you don't want to make friends because you know you're going to be uprooted at some point. But when when you hit 10th grade then, how did you first encounter alcohol and what, what were the circumstances surrounding that? That's another one of those I can clearly remember like it was yesterday type deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So in 10th grade, I started, I had, I had been, been playing sports and I had started to make, make a few friends yeah. that were, that were pretty popular. Right. Mm-hmm. Thank the, one of those friends, I, uh, he had taken me to a party 
and this was at someone's house and mm-hmm. uh, there was a bunch of bunch of bunch of people from our school there and this guy pulls up and he's got beer and we head out to the uh, in, in front of his house i don't even know why i mean his parents weren't home uh, but for whatever reason we wanted to drink out in the mm-hmm. street so <laughs> so we go out hmm. there and they pull huh. up, they pull out beer right and i had put in money for yeah. a six pack and it was uh, Miller right. White. So, <laughs> like I said, yeah, right, <laughs> well, yeah. I was sixteen, right? So, <laughs> that's that's yeah, like right. good beer yeah. for sixteen. I, I would say probably. <laughs> well, advertising to that age group works, doesn't that's it? That's right. It does. It does. But I remember I drank like I knew how to do it right away. Really? Meaning, I knew what it would do to me. It's really strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I'm a binge drinker. That's, that's just mm-hmm. how I've always drank. And I drank that way from the very first time I killed those six beers as quick as I could. Mm-hmm. And just like I knew how to do it. And, um, yeah. and, uh, when that happened, all of that fear and uncomfortable and nervousness and all, all of it immediately went away. And all of a sudden yeah. I could talk to people and people thought I was funny and, you know, I uh-huh. would say crazy things and people would laugh and girls liked me because I could talk to them now. And, mm-hmm. and sure. it literally was. I mean, I was I didn't become the most popular kid in school, but but um, I definitely alcohol made me comfortable. I found something mm-hmm. that had worked that had gotten rid of all of that, that anger and fear and that I had lived with since as long as I can mm. remember. Did that come up for you? quickly or was that a realization that happened over time the feeling like you belonged and feeling like you could talk to people and get along in social situations i'd say immediately yeah i mean i can remember that next day was like man what what happened that wasn't me right but Mm -hmm. you know at that time it was i i didn't do anything crazy it was it was fun i had fun i was actually able to have fun it's a lot easier i think to move forward than the people who I've interviewed and friends I've had who their very first drink or their first number of drinks ended up in them getting sick or whatever else, and then they still wanted to do it. Uh, I think my experience at the first time was more like yours. I enjoyed it, and I couldn't wait to enjoy it again. Um, and there were times I got sick, of course, but by that point, I already knew that I enjoyed it, and those were just quirks in the in the mix of things. You know? So you were drinking in 10th grade, and then... So fast forward it a little bit for us here. Uh, what was the rest of your high school like with regards to drinking and how it was affecting your life and past high school? You know, um, high school, uh, it didn't really seem to affect me at all. You know, a mm-hmm. lot of it was fun. I never yeah. had hangovers. Uh, I never really suffered any consequences. I was, uh, mm-hmm. I was having sure. fun. I wasn't acting out. I was just having fun. But now I was drinking to excess every time I drank. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was binge drinking. Like I said, from day one, it was it was I need as much as I can as quick as I can. Mm -hmm. But it worked. It worked for me. And, and, uh, you know, it in the college, it affected my my schoolwork. 
and I never finished college and, yeah. and uh, dropped out. Mm-hmm. I knew all I wanted to do was work for myself, but I had no clue what that looked like. Yeah. Why? Because I don't like having a boss. Mm-hmm. So uh, I went out and experienced what the, what the real world is like. And I got jobs and I started waiting tables and I did things here and there that, that uh-huh. just kind of, uh, they're all jobs where I had a boss and things I didn't want to do. I needed to make money. I needed to do something. Uh, oh. I worked in mm-hmm. uh, retail for a while where I did really well. I managed mm-hmm. the store and got quickly promoted. Uh, and I was working for the corporate office and I was traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that job is where my drinking really took off. And that's where the consequences started coming in. And that's where like I was really starting to do things where like I just wasn't making – I didn't know why I was – acting out and starting fights in bars and, you know, uh, had this job where they gave me a company credit card and they let me travel the United States. And I was in a different city and state every two weeks and lived out wow. of a suitcase. And in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. it was a lot of people's dream because I had a lot of friends who were envious of that. Were you single at the time? Uh, I was single at the time when I when I started that I'd, I'd had a girlfriend in college and we were kind of on a mm-hmm. path to probably getting married. But uh, that's a good example that you brought up. That's something that, that due to my mm-hmm. drinking didn't didn't pan out. And so we broke up. I got this job and kind of ran with it. And I stayed single for a while. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audio book. Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. When you were doing this job traveling all over the place, how many years was this before you first went into AA? Four years. Was it the same kind of binge drinking it, it was same kind of binge drinking. I had started experimenting with drugs and I had kind of started that in college. Mm. And, but I will, I'll say I know this today. I mean, I have addictive personality. I can get addicted to anything. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But what, what did the most damage and what I was always had to do was alcohol. You know, I, yeah. um, um, I know I, you give me anything, I'll get addicted to it. But, but alcohol, I would say really, really had me. That's the... That was the drug of choice. Yeah. Did you stay in that binge mode when you were over this period of time or did you move into being more of a everyday or more of a regular drinker? It was pretty regular and it was always binge. So we would work, you know, 12, 14 hour days and you're with a bunch of, I was managing and in charge of college students and I was traveling to college Mm. towns and you know, when I was someone from home office, I was someone important, right? Mm-hmm. Not really, but to, to everyone there, I was important. So everyone wanted to take you out and get you drunk. And so yeah. Yeah. it was a binge for me the entire time. I've never not binge drink. Wow. You know, I've never been the person who's like, oh, I think I'm only going to have a few, you know, I've, I've never even really had that thought. It's like, I know what I'm doing. Um, mm. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. all in. 
I'm all in or I'm all out. Yeah, yeah. What was your performance on the job like during this time? It sounds like you were in a perfect situation to have other people help get you what you needed. How did you perform? Well, I was very really? much a functional alcoholic. Again, for the longest time, I didn't have hangovers. I could drink all night, sleep for two hours, and get up, down coffee and Red Bull, and be on my 12, 14-hour day. It's like no wow. matter what, I would get up and I'd go to work and I'd do my job. Uh, and yeah. and I, I did it well. The one thing that did happen is I ended up breaking some rules with that job and I lost that job. Yeah. So even though my performance was well, as soon as I was not following the rules that were put in place, uh, you know, I, I paid the price for it. Was that as a direct result of the drinking or was it the behavior that was alcoholic that caused that? Direct result of the drink of my behavior under the influence of alcohol. Yeah. We had gone out one night and and uh, kind of the norm for me, what had become the norm for me, especially in the, the probably the year leading up to that, it was happening quite often is we would all go out and we would get drunk and uh -huh. I would probably start a fight with someone in a bar and or I'd get us kicked out. And, and that's what I did this night. Uh -huh. and, you know, I almost got arrested and, and people that were working with me talked the cops out of taking me to jail and and um mm -hmm. I, I ended up sleeping through a, uh, a meeting we had with uh, one of the vice presidents of the company. And you, you don't do that. I was performing my job well and my, my bosses were liking my performance. They also were not there. Uh -huh. They were in Ohio and uh, we uh -huh. were traveling the U.S. So uh, they weren't there to see what was happening. And so at that point, people, my coworkers, were, had grown tired of my behavior and said he's doing his job but this is the what he's causing this is what he's doing after hours and we're just kind of sick of it and so they voiced their opinion they told my boss here's what here's what's been happening and so they approached me and said here's what hmm. we've heard and i couldn't lie <laughs> so yeah how many of these colleagues did you have uh on the road with you at any given time on the road, there was uh, four of us. And were they engaging in the same kind of behavior that, that you were? Or were they had they tamped it down or did they not do the kind of things that you were doing that you got in trouble for? They were not doing the things that I was doing. They were they were drinking. Everyone was drinking and everyone was partying. Uh -huh. And I, they were sure. drinking to excess, but uh, not really to the level I was and definitely not... Mm -hmm. Doing some of the things I was doing, they were not a blackout every time I drink. And so I wouldn't, they would tell me what I did and I wouldn't remember. And they, I was the only one that was getting us kicked out. I was the only one that was getting, almost getting arrested. Um, I was the mm. only one causing those kind of problems. Everyone was drinking and having a good time, but that's kind of where it, the line, that's kind of where it ended with everyone else. And for me, I was always the one that was mm. the, the guy that was going to get yeah. us kicked out of where we were. So you were walking around with the blessing and the curse. You had the blessing of not having hangovers, which is always was always nice. But blacking out every time, that's difficult because you don't know what it was that got you into the trouble that you got into. You're still feeling okay the next morning, though. That's got to make you feel like maybe I didn't get into that much trouble. You know, yes, but it's like I don't, <clears throat> I don't know how to explain it. The I'd wake up the next morning and maybe it's just because it became such a regular occurrence, but I'd wake up the next morning and say, 
I don't know what I did last night, but I know most likely I did something crazy. Like I most likely I did something that I am not proud of and something I'm embarrassed about. Mm. And I just don't know what it is, but I know it was something, you know, that, that feeling of kind of testing the waters when you see someone after you've been drinking a lot, uh, man, a black for me, it's I blacked out, blackout every time. So, and they knew something you didn't know, which could always be used, uh, over you, I guess at some point, huh? Correct. You got booted from the company at after four years, so it never occurred to you to just stop? No. No. Uh, I would say, hey, okay, that's it. I'm done. But it was usually after something crazy had happened, right? And then that thought le- left me right away, right? As quick as it came, it was gone. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should stop. Mm-hmm. And one night, I got into a, a, a fight uh, in a bar, and, and uh, uh, I ended up... Um, in an altercation with a with an officer, and, and uh, it wasn't a major one. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, but mm-hmm. either way, that's what landed me in jail. And that was mm-hmm. the point of like, I man, I really, really don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to stop yeah. doing what I'm doing. I wanted to drink and be able to get away with whatever, or not do that behavior. That was what I wanted. Yeah, and that's the great illusion that I think every active alcoholic has, that they can find the magic formula, but almost never find it. What year was this when all this was kind of coming to a head for you? That was 2006. So you were put in, you said jail, was that county, county jail or? Uh, yes. Yeah, it was, it was county jail. Uh, but I was, they allowed uh-huh. me to bail out uh, I bailed out the next day, mm-hmm. so it's not like I spent days or weeks okay. in jail. I was there for a day, but I was there long enough to say, "Wow, I can't believe I am here." I had an attorney, I hired an attorney to represent me, and and she helped me mm-hmm. uh, get through that. And so it wasn't on my record, and and um, that was taken care of. Was the was AA ever part of that solution that got you off the hook, or was that yet to come? I hadn't uh, been introduced to AA at that time. No, I I went through that experience, mm. and that was that was a few months. And um, mm. I moved through that, and still I couldn't stop drinking. I had all these things inside of me from behaviors I had done when I was drinking, and got me to a place where I hated myself, and I didn't know yeah. what to do. And so I was yeah. looking for something that experience is what kind of catapulted me into looking for something that was going to help me. And I didn't know what that was. And I'd sure. never heard of AA. And I went to church and I spoke to a, uh, a priest and kind of uh, mm-hmm. told him everything I had been doing and everything I had gone through and everything I had experienced. Mm-hmm. And, and he basically told me, well, I should, I should go to church and I, I should build yeah. a relationship with God. And I was like, yeah, yeah that's not what I'm looking for. <laughs> you know, that's the last thing I'm looking for because <laughs> back in my childhood, mm-hmm. I made that decision that God was, yeah. if there was some kind of God, he was not out to, he wasn't out looking to take care of me because if he was, yeah. he wouldn't have given me the life I had and lost the people mm-hmm. I lost or didn't have the people yeah. I didn't have in my life. So if there's a God, then yeah. he's not out to help me. I need to help myself. So I walked away from that. That's really tough. Uh, what did you tell the priest or the people of the church? Did you let them know that you would or would not be participating and the reasons why you didn't want to, or did you just not show up? I just didn't show up. Much easier. 
Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> you know, on the way out, I remember walking to the parking lot and I'm like, that's bullshit. I'm not doing that. That must have made you feel kind of hopeless, though, right? I mean, most people, when they have major problems, they turn to their church or to their religious convictions and they get some kind of relief from that. Must have been difficult to know that you that avenue was closed. Of course, it was self-imposed, but it was still closed to you. Correct. It did make yeah. me feel hmm. hopeless, right? Like, hmm. I don't know what's mm-hmm. going to help me that's out there. I only see it now, but I see how God has worked in my life mm-hmm. the entire time from day one. Yeah, that's a heck of a realization, too. We we normally don't, at least in my experience, it was only after certain experiences that I recognized God had been working in my life. It's so difficult for me to go into the next situation expecting he's going to work in my life. But when I get through that situation, I can always see how he has worked in my life. Connecting the dots there has always been difficult for me. So you go to the church. That's not the solution. This is 2006 heading forward. How many years before you finally hit the doors of AA and tried out the program? Well, actually, it was just a a few months later. Uh, I I can't remember. I want to say it must have been. Oh, man, it was probably around August. From there, like you said, I felt hopeless. Sure. But I continued Uh only with the people I was closest with. So back in high school, I found a little group of friends that I could that I'm still friends with today and watched me drink from back then to through college to my 20s all the way up to that point. I did find a group of guys that I became really close with and I was in all of their weddings and they were in my wedding and, and wow. we were, like I said, we're all still friends today and and I had one in particular that I was really close with and uh, you know uh-huh. he didn't he's a drinker who likes to drink but doesn't take it to my level nowhere near. And uh, I remember going to him and telling him, I said, man, you know, I just, I don't know something's wrong with me. And he said, I've seen the way you drink and I worry about you. And uh, I know someone who you should talk to. Uh-huh. He said, I'm going to put you in contact with him and and I think you should talk to him. He hmm. ended up putting me in contact with another, another guy that we had gone to high school with that uh, this guy met with me. We went to dinner mm-hmm. and I did the same thing I did with that priest. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just spit everything out that I had done in my life that I felt guilty over, that I felt terrible over. And, and then I told him about the drinking and, and, um, and he said, yeah, he said, I, I relate to a lot of what you say. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been there. I know what that's like. And, uh, I found something that can, that helped me. And man, I immediately yeah. felt relief uh-huh. and felt comfortable Right. Because here is someone who finally said, I know Uh what you're talking about. I've done Uh the exact same thing. I have the blackouts. I binge drink. I don't know why I do certain Uh things. So anyway, he said, uh, there's a group of guys that get together. Um, Uh You ought to come with me sometime. They meet every Friday. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. I'll do that. No problem. And he said, "Okay, great. Well, there's a meeting in 30 minutes. And And I said, well, hold on. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't mean now. <laughs> I meant like... <laughs> Sounds like you were ambushed there. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, I didn't mean right now. I like I'll check it out sometime in the future. And he said, no, you ought to just come with me. He said, it literally, we're like 10 minutes away. 
And so he put me on the spot and I just said, okay, I'll go. That was my introduction into AA. I didn't even know where we were going. I didn't know it was an AA meeting. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So this kind of takes us full circle to what you were talking about when we started. And so you went to poker night. Uh, did you did you start to stay sober after that meeting or uh, what was the trajectory from there to your next milestone? Yeah, that I, I did stay sober from from there. I guess uh, I more so just kind of got taken. Right. And, and, and like I said, that's why I said it was exactly what I needed. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. had they said, hey, come back. I want to come back. Yeah. Uh, they said, give me your number. Here's where we're going to be tomorrow. Right. And this is where you're going to be. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. And, and, and I'll you tell know, you the, the one thing great. that happened in that, that end of that first meeting, I'll never forget it. And this is what really kind of made me decide, let me check this out. Let me see what this is about. I went to the meeting. I sat in the meeting, didn't say a word. Don't remember what was said. I don't remember anything about the meeting. I picked up the desire chip, but mm-hmm. At the end of the meeting, obviously, everyone came up, a bunch of guys came up and said, hey, here's my number, call me anytime. Or this guy came up and he said, hey, man, Mm -hmm. you don't have to feel the way you feel anymore. And that Mm -hmm. right there was the game changer. You know, the guy at dinner hit me with, I know what you're going through, I've done it. And then this guy comes up to me and says, you don't have to feel the way you feel anymore. I had no clue how he knew how I felt. Um, and so that combined with the guys just taking me, I just jumped in and said, maybe there's something here. And I started, I got a sponsor that Mm. weekend and, and started working the steps and I stayed sober for just over a year and a half. Like I told you, I made it to step eight, made it through step eight, was going to Mm -hmm. start nine. Uh, I had even had a sponsee at the, I was sponsoring Mm -hmm. a guy at the time. Um, I, my whole life, you know, it really started to, Mm -hmm. I worked the program. I did what was asked. You know, um, I got a job. I got a, a job that yeah. I thought was below me. Yeah. <laughs> I had, uh, but to this day, I'll never forget. And I'm so appreciative for that opportunity because I learned so much from having that job and having some structure back in my life, going to meetings two to three times a day, uh, working sure. the steps, hanging out with other guys in AA. I mean, I really, I jumped in. Was that when I first met you? That is correct. I okay. would go to- that would have been at the outpost <laughs> meeting all those years ago. That's right. That's right. So what happened at a year and a half that caused you to slip? Was it a gradual slip or was it was it one of these sudden? A friend of mine used to call it the bud syndrome, building up to drink. Uh, what was that like? I think that's what it was like for me, building up to drink maybe. Really? I don't know. But my experience was things got better in my life. Uh-huh. The hourly job I had, all of a sudden, I got another job and it was in, uh-huh. in sales for an oil and gas manufacturer. And then I started mm-hmm. dating a girl who uh, I was going to marry. And, you know, and I got moved into a new place, got a new car, you know, things were getting better in my life. And as much as I was in the program and working the steps, it's not that I didn't believe I was alcoholic. I didn't completely buy into God was really going to take care of me. I think I, mm. I was still under that, like, I need to take care of myself. I need to do this. I need to do that. I didn't 100% rely on God. That was the fact that all those good things were happening to you. It, it never occurred to you that maybe that was God taking care of you, huh? That's Isn't right. That interesting. That's right. Isn't that interesting? 
Wow. That's right. I think what you're talking about right now is the classic situation when life seems to get too good and people get distracted and sobriety starts to move down the priority list. And is that what happened for you? Correct. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my whole life and again, of, of going back to when I was a child, I, 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 w- I never felt good enough. I never felt accepted. I never even, mm-hmm. you know, I got thrown into an environment where then I felt like everyone else was way up here and I was way down here. Yeah. So in my mind, I'd always envisioned uh, material success as equaling happiness. And yeah. that's some yeah. of the, and, and you're exactly right. Uh, those are the things that then started to slip up, num- slip up to that number one spot. Right. I, yeah. I wanted what everyone else had, right. A wife, uh, uh, cars, the job, right. Um, yeah. because those were the things that were going to make me normal mm-hmm. back when I was drinking, I wanted, I just wanted to be normal like everyone else. So you were backing away from the program. Like we back up towards the edge of a cliff. The ground feels solid underfoot until you're, it's too late. Were the people around you, your sponsor and the men that you were going to meetings with, were they aware of this or did any of them confront you anywhere along the way and say, hey, man, I noticed you're not going to as many meetings or, hey, man, when you share, it doesn't sound like you're very vested anymore. What, what's going on? Did you have any feedback like that from your running pals? I did for my sponsor, hmm. you know, because all of a sudden I wasn't in as many meetings. I wasn't as active. I wasn't as hmm. prompt with, or I wasn't as on top of returning phone calls. And so uh, he did mention that. And I just said, oh, well, mm-hmm. you know, I'm busy and I've got a lot of things going on. And and so, yeah, I did hear that actually now that I think about it from, from several people. You know, I don't see you as much, right? Uh, I was yeah. a minimum seven meeting a week guy that probably slowly started turning into, you know, four and three and two. And, and for me, it all happened quick. Everything, everything happens quick for me. (laughs) I build things up quick and I, and and I wreck them quick. (laughs) Well, I, I remember missing you from, from the outpost. I remember the times you'd come back. I remember myself saying, I haven't seen you in a while, Chris, where you been? And you always had good reasons, but they never washed with me, but I never said anything except, well, it's good to see you today. Yeah. Uh, so at a, at a year and a half, where did you find yourself? Where did you take that drink and what was your next step after that? So at a year and a half, I was starting to uh, transition into a new career and I was uh, about to get engaged. And so in my mind, I had this thought of like, okay, I'm finally here at this spot where I want to be in life. And this is what's going to keep me sober. And this is what's going to make everything okay. And uh-huh. I'm going to focus here instead on yeah. the job, on the wife. And I'm going to work on this. And this is what will keep me, not keep me sober. The thought was keep me okay. This is what's going to yeah. like calm me down, keep me grounded this is what yeah. I needed in life. I, I think I, what I really needed to do, thanks AA, but I, what I really needed to do, I just needed to stop. And now that I've stopped, I'm good. Yeah. I needed a yeah. break. And uh, The classic handoff, right? Correct. Whatever it is that takes the place of AA. Correct. Mm. And um, mm. I'll tell you, the first drink was, was, uh, was, at a, was at dinner. I had told my fiance, I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to 
you know, I'm, I'm going to give AA a, a break. I don't remember exactly what I said, but but basically that's mm-hmm. what I was saying. I'm going to give it a break. I want to try drinking. I think I'm I'm good now. I'm okay now. That was I needed mm-hmm. a break, and and so her yeah. not being an alcoholic just seemed like oh okay yeah <laughs> you know yeah. all right well, that's, that's she wouldn't know exactly yeah. mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. I did and and uh, you know I I went out and this was the next phase of my life that was crucial for me to be right here mm. right now because mm. I can tell you I got everything I thought I wanted hmm. everything I put on that that list I got it hmm. I got the job I wanted did did the things I wanted got married uh, took the trips I wanted drove the car I wanted did all the things that I wanted to do and got everything on that list that was going to keep me normal hmm and I was miserable. Sounds almost like you you proved that you could do it all without AA, and the only thing missing was happiness or yep. contentment or peace. Hmm. Contentment, peace, wow. true happiness. Hmm. Yes. Hmm. I was going to was gonna ask you what your drinking was looking like at that point. So my drinking shifted now. Um, what started out. You know, I was I was controlling it in the very beginning. I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't realize it then, but I see it now. How I was like, I'm going to prove to myself that I can have two margaritas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now that I look back, I remember how much I was hating it. But I was telling myself, everything. See, I told you, you yeah. can have two more. You can have two. You're good. Um, yeah. But very quickly, it became. My drinking changed. Uh, what was a party and what was fun became isolation and drinking, uh, planning my drinking around when I had to be around people, um, mm-hmm. hiding my drinking and drinking by myself. Wow. Not wanting to be around anyone. I, I get that. And especially that isolation, I think, is an outgrowth, not only of the natural isolation that our disease would like us to be in, so it can control more of our lives, but the isolation that occurs because you can't easily get back to what it was that really worked for you. The AA, going back to a meeting after you haven't been to one is tough because people say, where you been? And if you've been out there drinking and you, you don't want to level with them about where you've been, that makes you feel even more isolated. So from the point at which you took that drink and you started to get all the things you wanted and were trying to control it, when did you, so it's 2007 and a half, was that about when you, 2008, when you started? 2008. Uh, okay. So what happened between then and the next time that you came back to AA? When was that? I would say I started to come back in 2015. Hmm. So you were out there for like six six years. That's right. Wow. Wow. Now, those yeah. were in and outs. You know, it was very 14 and 15. I mean, really 15. I think I, I strung about three months together was like the longest amount of sobriety I had. Aside from that. I remember seeing you get those chips. You you got the desire chip. Then it seemed like a month later, you got the one month and then three months. And the feeling amongst people who cared about you, and I was one of them, was, oh, good. Fine, maybe he's finally got it. And then you were gone and we didn't see you again for a while. Yeah. You know, in, in the time of me being out, I had... I. Um, you know, I went through a divorce and when I went through the divorce, I really had hit the, uh, the bottom 
you know, when that, the, those times of, of, I remember the, the, the few months I had, Mm -hmm. I had a few things that happened in my life that, that justified me going out to drink again. And so my grandfather on my mom's side had passed away Mm -hmm. and then, and craziest thing months later, and it was after this, when I decided to go drink again, my, my, one of my cousins, she died in a, in a car accident. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, just a freak accident. She's a year younger than me. She had yeah. three kids and just uh-huh. just like that, gone, right? Huh. Car accident. It was bad weather. And yeah. And then the very next day, no relation to it at all. Didn't seem to be at all. I have, a, I have an uncle who took his own life. Oh, dear. And that uncle who was, uh, you know, as a kid, I was close to him and we did a lot of things yeah. together. And, and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But the thing that really shook me about it is this was a guy who everyone loved Hmm. who was extremely social and very much a people Mm -hmm. person and a very successful guy Mm -hmm. built Mm -hmm. a business on his own Mm -hmm. and was very was self-made successful two kids one was going to college the other was in high school and uh no signs of any of him in any pain or having any kind of a drug or alcohol problem. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. and the guy took his own life. So he had everything you wanted initially and he ends up committing suicide or completing suicide as they say. Correct. God, that must've been tough. It was. And it was, again, it was something that of my higher power working in my life because it made me think of like, you're here. Why are you still here? Why yeah. am I still here? Right? Yeah. It was tough to go through that. And, and I know even tougher for, for his wife and kids. And, uh, and you know, I, and then I, I had to watch his, his kids react to that. Mm, a and little it bit. made me think of my own child and how yeah. he would feel and what if, and how easily that could be me. You know. So by this time, when that happened, your own son was what two, three, four years old, some something like that. Yeah, he was like two and a half. So the, now, was he the child from the the marriage that where the divorce occurred? Correct. Okay, so were you raising him, or was your wife with you visitation? Was it joint? How did that work? We have had and have joint custody. I have him fifty okay. percent of the time. Mm-hmm. I get him every two days, and uh, cool. And so I've, I'm, I'm really lucky. Uh, I got yeah. an opportunity to spend a lot of time with, with him. And, and uh, I've had that from the beginning. Good time for you to be sober, huh? It's a great time for me to be sober. Yeah, those are some of the coolest years in a kid's life. You know, six, eight, ten years old. It's amazing. It, you're right. It, and it really is. And it's, it's, I hear this from, from everyone and to, to you know, enjoy it because it goes fast. And, and I'm seeing that. I'm, I'm so grateful that. What happened on May 13th of 2016, and I can't explain it to this day. I mean, I, I, I know what it is, but it's hard for me to explain the how that happened. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. But what has happened since what's happened in the relationship I have with my son is amazing. Yeah. And so is it safe to say you can draw a correlation between getting sober and staying sober and really working the program this time and your relationship with your son? hundred percent. I know it for a fact. Yeah. I asked that question knowing the answer already, but <laughs> you know, I just wanted to make sure you were, you were on track. So you're, so you came back in May of 2015. 
16. And so you've been working the program since then. I know that, did you, is it the same sponsor you had from the first time? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, it was interesting. I, okay. When I came back, I, you know, was going to a lot of meetings where I knew I wouldn't know anyone. Uh-huh. Because like you had mentioned, I was ashamed and I didn't want to do the whole whole deal. And, um, yeah. you know, what was interesting too is about a few months before, like, I guess that beginning of that 2016, mm-hmm. let me tell you, the time I was out, I never mm-hmm. run ac- ran across anyone in the program. You're kidding. I was all over town. Nope. Never. Wow. In the wow. three months prior, I ran across two guys that I knew well in the program in random mm-hmm. spots. Um, oh, wow. One of those guys being the man who was at my first meeting who said, you don't have to feel the way you do. Wow. That's cool. Amazing. But uh, yeah, I just, I wanted to put that out there because that was that again, to me, that's just such a, a higher power thing. Yeah. That's a God deal. I, I always look at those and say that that's not a coincidence. That's God doing for us what we, what we can't do for ourselves. And so I've seen you more, obviously, in the last five years, four and a half, five years, than I saw you at any point before. I'm always grateful to see you on an ongoing basis. And I know that you're working with some, you've worked with some other guys too, haven't you, as, as a sponsor? I have. Um, I've worked cool. with mm-hmm. a number of other guys. Um, yeah. Uh, quite a few, and, and some of them have made it all through the steps, and some of them have not. But you've stayed sober, right? But I have stayed sober. and So it was a success. That's right. And the, the sponsor I have today is as a guy I met, and it's another God thing. It's a guy I met at a random Sunday 2 o'clock meeting. And I walked uh-huh. in and this guy, he's sitting up at the front, he's chairing this meeting and he's laughing and he's uh-huh. joking and I come in and I'm uh-huh. miserable. Um, uh-huh. And I had actually had a, had another sponsor before, right before for like a few weeks. And so this sponsor mm-hmm. had said, I want you to sit in the first three rows. You know, if you're called on, just don't share, but you sit in the first three mm. rows. And I said, yeah, I can do that. So I sat in the first row and this guy starts talking to me and, to be honest with you, I, I just was like, why is this guy talking to me and why is he laughing mm-hmm. and hugging people and, you know, what is it? Why, you know, I just didn't buy into his happiness. You know? yeah, yeah, I get that. <laughs> right. But I got his number and he became my sponsor. And I, I know for a fact God put him in my life 100%. Yeah. I yeah. believe I've gotten what I needed. I believe the sponsor I had for the short time I did in the very beginning was exactly what I needed for the that short time. And I believe mm. this man was put into my life by God. What a gift. And And it's kind of a neat way for us to wrap things up because I like to ask my guests, you know, what are some of the gifts that they've experienced uh, in sobriety, but... You've described just the relationship with your son seems to be a terrific gift. Uh, you've mentioned things like like peace of mind and certain degree of happiness. Those are gifts. What uh, what else strikes you as a major gift of sobriety? I could probably talk to you for another hour and a half about that. <laughs> Truthfully, that's the truth. But yeah, but I get uh, that. the the gifts of sobriety. Yeah, you do get it. I know. You, I know you get it. Uh, the gifts that I've gotten. I am okay with myself today. Hmm. I know who I am today. Mm-hmm. I'm just an alcoholic. I have the capability of being honest today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have integrity. I have a set of tools that I have learned in the program mm-hmm. 
that I can use that has that have gotten me through some very difficult times in life. And I have a relationship with a higher power, which I choose to call God. That combined with the relationship I have with my son, I have peace of mind today. That kind of peace of mind can keep you sober, in my experience, as long as it is combined with the mechanics of just continuing to do the things on a daily basis that we know we're supposed to do. I think it's hard to keep peace of mind if we're not doing those things on an ongoing basis. But um, one of the reasons I wanted you on the show today was because I've been observing you since you came back. And I've seen the transition from being very uh, reticent and hesitant uh, about embracing the program and the way you are now. It's, it's just a beautiful thing to behold. I want to congratulate you on that. That's that's great. And I appreciate that. And keep it up. You've got a great story that people need to hear. And hopefully they'll, uh, a number of them will hear it on this podcast. But more importantly, I always encourage people who I care about and love to make sure that other people, especially potential sponsees, get to hear that story firsthand so that they can identify and get the same help that you were so freely given. This has really been great, Chris. I, I'm so happy and pleased that you were able to do this today. And I love you, brother. And you've been, uh, you've been a big part of my sobriety over the, the years, even when you weren't here. And I'll guarantee you, I notice when men are no longer there. And, but I, I always like to see them when they are. And uh, every time I would greet you at the door of the outpost, when you'd come from that noon meeting, man, in the last few years, several years now, um, you always had that big smile on your face. And you know, keep keep it there, man. You're you're one man who I respect and admire a great deal. So, thanks for doing this today, my friend. Thank you, Howard. I, I'm so grateful for you asking me to do this, and and you're definitely a man I admire too. And I I, I love you, and I'm uh, I'm just so grateful to have this opportunity. And I thank you so much for being in my life. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Think of it as a little AA service that spreads the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience. It's yet another helping hand that we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. Visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every episode of AA Recovery Interviews. And if you want to contact me directly with any comments or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. 